This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co host, Dolores Alfieri. And today we have a little bit of a, I would say, a scholarly episode with Anthony Tamburi, who is the dean of the John Calandra Italian American Institute. Uh, it was very interesting, and we also have a very sad but heartwarming story from one of our listeners, Marissa, in the Italian American Stories segment. Dolores, how are you doing today? Hello, Anthony. I'm doing well. I'm speaking to you a little bit down the road because I'm back in New York, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah, our listeners who you know also read our blog will have probably read my blog post a couple weeks ago called The New Neighborhood, Going Back Home, Wherever You Can Find It, where I talked about the fact that I was uh, moving back home after living away for about a little bit over a year and a half. So it's been like less than a week. It's been really nice. Already cooked up a big dinner with the family and friends on just like a Monday night. You know, it's just some of the nice things you can do when you're close to home. Yeah, that's awesome. No, it's good to have you back close by. And one thing that I just want to mention for our listeners is that I'm looking at the clock, Dolores. Yeah. We set up a call at 11 o'clock to record this, and it's now 1140, <laughs> and we just started. <laughs> we were talking. In case anyone didn't think we were really Italian, I think we definitely are. <laughs> and I think finally one of us was just like, all right, let's stop. We got to record. Yeah. And of course, I like, you know, Dolores, I have a call at 1130. So if we're going to start at 11, we have to get this done before that. Yeah, no problem. Now it's 1140. I just hit the record button. All right, very good. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, now we're going to get to do a lot more of it in person, too, which, which will be good. We can do uh, a lot more events because I don't have to travel up here. I'm, I'm local. We're going to do some more videos because it's easy for Anthony and I to get together. So stay tuned. On that note, we are going to be launching our new neighborhood community that we've talked about on the last episode. And as Dolores said, we're going to try to do more events. I mean, I think it's a way for us to push ourselves as well, like get out to Arthur Avenue once in a while, do some things around New York City area, who knows where and where we'll go. But it's going to be interesting. We're going to have a group online where we can chat. We're going to do some things in person. And, you know, we're going to also give you a way to support the podcast because many of you have asked about supporting the podcast. So, we're looking forward to it, and it's just another exciting thing as everything grows, basically, as the platform grows. Exactly, yeah. And we're going to aim to have some past guests, you know, come on in the private group and maybe do live chats with you guys, whoever joins the group. So, you know, you can talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, basically, these people that you've, you know, have just heard us speak to. So it should be cool. All right. So before we introduce our guest for today's episode, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. 
I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NEF, we know there's nothing more important than family, so we invite you to be part of ours. We work to protect our great heritage, promote the Italian language, build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, our scholarships provide young Italian Americans help in earning a solid education. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become part of the NIAF family today. This is Gabriella Maletti, Director of Programs at the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your NIAF in the News. Attention all aspiring filmmakers. NIAF has teamed up with the Italian Sons and Daughters of Italy and Hollywood directors, the Russo Brothers, to bring future filmmakers an opportunity of a lifetime with the Russo Brothers Italian American Film Forum. Learn more about this exciting opportunity on NIAF.org. But hurry, the deadline to apply is March 15th. And lastly, join the National Italian American Foundation in the Big Apple on March 22nd for a memorable evening at the legendary Cipriani 42nd Street for the NIAF New York Gala. NIAF will honor distinguished Italian Americans of New York City. And for more information on all NIAF events, visit www.niaf.org. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode. Anthony Julian Tamburi is the dean of the John D. Calandra Italian American Institute and distinguished professor of European languages and literatures. His research interests lie in literature, cinema, semiotics, interpretation theory, and cultural studies. He has divided his intellectual work evenly between Italian and Italian-American studies, authoring more than a dozen books and 100 essays on both subject areas in English and Italian. He is also the editor of more than 30 volumes and special issues of journals. Among his editorial work, he is contributing co-editor of the volume From the Margin, Writings in Italian Americana, and co-founder of Bordighera Press, publisher of the semi-annual Voices in Italian Americana, Italiana, and three book series, via Folios, Crossings, and Sagistica, as well as the Bordighera Poetry Prize. Tambori is also executive producer of the TV program Italics, which Dolores and I were thrilled to be on. That's right. And a member of the founding directors of the internet portal iitaly.org. So Anthony was great. He was very scholarly in the episode, but he did get into some interesting topics between the Italian and the Italian-American studies, which we, we made a point to ask him to break down because we're not all scholars and academics. And so there were some things that we really wanted to dig into him a little bit. I think he did a really good job explaining that. And like I said, too, we had a really heartwarming Italian-American story segment submission or recording from Marissa, one of our listeners that you'll hear after that. So Dolores, you want to take us in with a quote? Absolutely. So this quote from Ray Bradbury, we chose because in this episode, you'll hear that speaking to Anthony kind of brought out Anthony and I's, you know, inner book geeks. And we do talk about books and the importance of books and culture, period, in preserving a culture. If those books aren't published, if books by Italian-Americans about Italian-Americans aren't offered to the wider community, then the voices of our community are not heard and that culture can fade. So here's the quote. You don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. Just get people to stop reading them.
right, before we jump into the interview with Anthony Tambori, I just want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for the interview segment of the episode, Nona Box. Like so many Italians and Italian-Americans, I longed for a taste of home after moving to the U.S. four years ago, says Guido Pedrelli, founder of Nona Box. Every month, Nona Box features a different Italian region by selecting six of its gourmet artisanal imported products. In showcasing the region, Nona Box also shares the story of a regionally local Italian Nona along with three of her favorite traditional recipes. Some of these recipes use products from the box. Each box also comes with cards that include the gastronomic history of the region, as well as explanations about the box's products, serving suggestions, and even regional wine pairings from an Italian sommelier. Visit NonaBox.com and use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $10 off your order. I got my Sicily box in the mail. I've been enjoying it quite a bit. There's some really awesome stuff in there like the pistachio cream, which is great, and all kinds of other stuff. So thanks so much, Guido and Nona Box, for sponsoring the podcast. All right. Now I'd like to welcome our guest, Anthony Tambori, to the Italian American podcast. Anthony, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Hi, Anthony. It's nice to speak with you again. Well, I was going to say good to see you, but good to hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, we usually start every episode by asking our guests to speak a little bit about their Italian-American upbringing. I was brought up basically in a very Italian neighborhood in Stamford, Connecticut, and it was for the most part working class. And really most of the people a little bit older than me, many of them did not go to college. Of my first cousins, which numbers around 40, I think I'm the third. Yeah, exactly. Large family. I think I'm the third bachelor's. I'm the second master's. And to date, I'm the only doctorate. Wow. I'm the third youngest of about 40 of them. Wow. It's a big family. It's a nice big Italian family. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a neighborhood that was very Italian, that was basically, let's say, bilingual for the sake of saying English and some various forms of dialect, as well as Italian. Most of us, however, grew up speaking English, and we learned, some of us learned Italian in the home, and some of us learned it in school. I learned it basically in school, in high school, and then college, and I majored in Italian in college. And then went on to do my MA and my PhD in Italian. So did your family speak Italian at home? They spoke Italian to their parents. And on one side, they spoke a sort of Italianate dialect. The other part, they spoke a Francophone dialect. And and oddly, that Francophone dialect is from southern Italy, and it's from Puglia. There's an area in northwestern Puglia that has remained this sort of linguistic island, uh, which speaks a couple of dialects that are Francophone, Franco-Provençal. How interesting. Never heard that. Yeah, it's very interesting, yeah. So did your grandparents come here from Italy or your parents? They did. My grandparents came here. On the one side, they came with about four kids. And then seven more were born in the States. And on the other side, uh, they were all born in the States. I'm trying to get this straight with the language because when I first met you, we came to the studio, of course, to film an episode of Italics. And we were stepped out of the studio. We were waiting to speak with you and say hello. And you were on the phone and you were speaking Italian. And one of the first things I said to you was, my goodness, your Italian's just terrific. So in my mind, I just had assumed you grew up speaking fluent Italian. 
No, I grew up hearing it, but not, I grew up hearing dialects, but not Italian. That's really something you taught yourself and went to, to school to learn. In junior high school, I studied Latin because they didn't offer Italian. They offered only French and Spanish. And then in high school, I started studying Italian. And when I went to college, sort of a long story, but basically I wanted to major in something else and it was a crowded field. And they said, well, why don't you declare something else? And eventually we got down to Italian. <laughs> And my thoughts are that I was going to change the following semester, you know, and then instead I fell in love with studying with Italian. So I just continued. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You built an entire lifetime career out of that. Exactly. Yes, it, it is. It's funny, it's funny how things happen. You came out of this really blue collar neighborhood and, and, you know, as our listeners heard in your bio, you really have a very, it's a very intellectual, very academic career. What made you kind of, you know, veer away from that kind of world and pursue this path? Well, the one thing I knew in college was that I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to teach Italian at a certain point when I was about a sophomore, junior, I knew I wanted to teach Italian and I was thinking of staying in Connecticut. I also knew that Eventually, I needed to get a master's. The sort of funny part of this is that I thought, okay, let me get my master's out of the way. I can get a job teaching and I'll never have to go to college again. (laughs) And so so I did the Middlebury program, which is an intensive 12-month program. You do a summer at Middlebury, then you do a year in Florence. At that time, they only had Florence, and now Middlebury has another study center, I think, in Ferrara. So when I was in Italy, and we were studying in the Italian university at that time, and I was taking classes, and I befriended young professors, very young. They were only a couple of years older than me. You know, I started to hang out with them and got into this sort of literary circle of sorts. And I really fell in love with studying Italian literature and culture. And about halfway through, I just decided that I would take a shot and apply for a PhD program, which I did. And uh, I got accepted to the three places, but no one gave me money. Went back to Connecticut. I was lucky I, at the last minute I got a teaching job. And I taught high school for a year. And in the meantime, I reapplied. And one of the places gave me money, and that was the University of California, Berkeley. And so I did as, I forget who it was now, who said it, but I went as a young man. To paraphrase that, paraphrase that. So, Anthony, you decided you wanted to teach Italian. And then, obviously, from then to now, quite a bit has happened, and the Calandra Institute has done amazing things. You've been published so many times. You've done so many writings. And how did all this happen? Like, how did it keep going, and how did you keep saying, you know, now I want to write, and then you start getting involved with other authors? How did the whole process unfold for you? There are two stories here, because there's my own story, and then there's, of course, the story of Bordighera Press, and and we can get to that. My own story is that I went to Berkeley, I did the doctorate, I took a couple of years longer, because it was really nice in California. And so the first part of my career was really itinerant. I mean, I I had a two-year job in one place, and a almost a a two and a half year job in another and a one year job in a third place. And then finally, after about six years of moving around, I landed a tenure track job at Purdue University. And Purdue had a wonderful teaching assignment for faculty, which was only two courses a semester. I had a great senior colleague who's Ben Lawton, he's still there. And I had a great chair ahead of the department who was Howard Mansing, who's still there also, but not as chair, he's just a regular faculty member. 
I got to Purdue at the right time. It was the time when humanities at Purdue was growing. There was getting a lot of support from the upper administration. We had a great dean who was actually an Italian-American, David Caputo. And so there were a number of things that came together. It was the luck of the draw. It was chance. And, and I was able to develop an intellectual profile career. I was able to, to develop a teaching career at not just the undergraduate, but also the graduate level. I was there for 13 years. And when I left, I left to become chair of the department of, I think it was called Literature and Linguistics and Comparative Literature at Florida Atlantic University. So I left Purdue already with sort of established, quote unquote, as far as we would say in the academy. You know, I was a full professor. I had a couple of authored books under my belt and and I was doing both Italian and Italian American studies. The Italian American studies really started at Purdue as soon as I got there. And so I was doing both. And I was doing both also on the graduate level through comparative literature. When I moved to Florida Atlantic University after three years, I became associate dean for graduate studies and research. And, and I really thought that was going to be my last stop. And instead, the job opened up at Calandra in 2006. And I took a shot, as the kid says in a frog's tail. When he gets called lying, and I took a shot. So I took a shot. I sent <laughs> my application. And they called me, you know, and I came up for an interview and then eventually I got a job offer. Can you just sum up for us non-academics, our listeners, a kind of layman yeah. explanation of what Italian studies actually is? So Italian studies is really the study, let's say, for the most part, language and literature of Italy, obviously. And it could be history, it could include history, it could include anthropology, whatever. But the departments of Italian where you get a doctorate in this country usually are literature and language-based for the most part, and cinema. Cinema is also very mm. much a part of Italian studies, the Italian departments. And then there's, of course, Italian-American studies. And with that, we're dealing with the language, culture, and history of people outside of Italy and specifically in North America. And I say language because I think we've seen enough films to understand that there is a bit of necessarily a dialect, but a type of patois or a slang, we might say, that is Italian-American if you've grown up in any of the major, you know, large Italian-American neighborhoods. So is this distinction between Italian studies and Italian-American studies relatively new? I guess it's relatively new because in some ways the field is, the attention to the field is relatively new to Italian-American studies. Italian-American studies isn't new as a field, especially from a historical and sociological point of view. The attention towards literature and cinema is newer, and mm. we can say it dates from the 70s on. But as far as sociology, a little bit of anthropology, a little bit of history, that's been around for a while. That's been around since the early 20th century. We can date back those studies back to the early and mid 20th century. And the attention, I would say, more than the field itself is new. The attention to the field is probably about 35 to 40 years old. You know, as we look back, I mean, I think some of the people who have helped garner that attention is someone like Helen Barolini, who did a historical anthology back in 1986 called The Dream Book. Rose Basile Green, who back in 1974 wrote the first book on Italian-American literature called The uh, Italian-American Novel, A Documentation Between Two Cultures. 
So those are two people who sort of brought it a little bit to the fore. There were historians, there were some sociologists, but they weren't getting the attention I think that they deserved at that time on a broad scale. What changed that, Anthony? What started bringing more attention? I think the the civil rights movement of the 60s and feminist movement of the late 60s. And I think in the 70s, we had mid-decade roots, that seven-evening series from Alex Haley. And there was a birth of, I say this in a good sense, a birth of sort of identity, ethnic identity politics that I think started to give a great deal of attention to other ethnics besides African-Americans. I think, you know, our show, Anthony, has shown us just kind of on a a regular everyday person type scale that I think a lot of the interests, you know, maybe not in the academic side as much. I know not necessarily all of our listeners are reading academic books on this subject, although maybe they will after this conversation. But I think also part of the interest in this type of study and exploration, which is marked by the popularity of our show as well, is people these days wanting to reconnect to something they feel they've lost. With Fred Gardefe and Paul Giordano, I edited, co-edited an anthology that came out in 1991 entitled From the Margin, Writings in Italian Americana. And I think what we found when we started to put that together in like 1998, we found that there was a much greater interest than we thought in Italian Americana, let's say in what does it mean to be an Italian in America? You know, what does it mean to be Italian-American, let's say? We were inundated with so much good literature. It was unexpected and it was wonderful. And from that, we decided to found a journal, which we did called Voices of Italian-Americana, VIA, which is still going strong 26 years later. And then that morphed into our little editorial venture called Bordigina Press. The interest is there beyond the academy. There are some really good writers who unfortunately can't get published by trade presses because there's just this thought out in the big world of publishing that a sort of quote-unquote wholesome uh, non-organized crime story really won't make it as an Italian-American story, but it might make it if there were a little bit of organized crime in it. And I think that's yeah. less today, but I think it's still there a little bit in the minds of some of the editors out there. So that was one of the reasons why we founded Bordighera Press, because we, especially with the poets, we found there were a lot of really good poets who couldn't get their poetry published by mainstream presses. So we decided back in 19, I think 92 was our first book, Bordighera Incorporated, which is the at 501c3 entity we organized in 1989. And then we started doing the journal in 90 and we started books in 92. And since then we've done about 160, 170 books, mostly poetry and fiction and some essays. And we've now done some other stuff as well. Well, I'll tell you, Anthony, I wrote a memoir a few years ago. It begins with my parents' childhood in Southern Italy. Mm -hmm. And our listeners have heard me speak about it. We've published excerpts of it. I have a long career as a writer, and I have been trying to get this book published by big mm-hmm. publishers for some time. And I've it's hard. To, yeah, I've reached out to many agents, and I will tell you this. Beside the fact that I have that classic Italian-American confidence, yeah. I would possibly doubt the quality of my writing if it were not for the fact that the responses I typically get are, this is really terrific work. This is a beautiful book, but I don't think I can sell it. Nobody Like, meaning... 
I don't think there's enough of an audience, A, in the Italian-American community who wants to read books, period, mm -hmm. and B, in the larger American audience, yeah. you know, i.e. this story about a family yeah. and, you know, immigration and forgiveness and love and all of those things that are not the mafia, right. you know, people are just worried it's not going to sell. And it's a catch-22 because on the one hand, they're telling you that they don't think they can publish it because they don't think there's an audience. On the other hand, they don't have any books to try to sell to create an audience. And the other part of that Catch-22 is that even the books that we publish, a couple of which have gotten starred reviews in Publishers Weekly, which is the sort of industry publication, right, for librarians right. Mm -hmm. and for booksellers. A couple of our books have gotten starred reviews there. And a number of our books have been reviewed also in Kirkus, which is another one of those mm -hmm. professional publications for librarians and booksellers. Yet, and we send them to the major book reviews, our books never get reviewed. Even the couple that have had a starred review, we made sure that that was included. They still don't get reviewed. And so it's a real catch-22 because if you look at major newspapers that have and we'll, we'll just talk in general terms. The major newspapers that have book reviews, whether it's weekly or bi-weekly, whatever, you basically see books published by major presses and books written by major names. And there's very little space for the sort of, we can call them small presses, boutique presses, whatever we want to call them. There's very few space, very little if no space at all, for those books. And that's a situation you're describing of your own experience. Now, do you think with your books in particular, those, let's say, for example, the starred reviewed ones you were just mentioning, yeah. do you think they're not reviewed on a larger scale because of their content or because of the author? So meaning, is it the Italian American subject or is it the Italian American author? I think it's a combination of things. I think that it's a combination of uh, the content. I think it's also the fact that, you know, we're not a well-known press out there. And uh, I think more and more we're getting attention because we've published more and more books. But uh, I think that's part of it. I think it's a combination of all of that. Yeah, and it's, and, a, it's, and it's kind it's of a, an old story for us. Yeah, and, and it's you a know. question we just need to keep our head down and keep you know, moving forward, keep on trucking, you know? Well, there's the story of Mario Puzzo, who, you know, if you're a literary type, right, his first book, which I'm blanking right now, Pilgrims. Dark, there, no, his first one was actually Dark Arena, then A Fortunate Pilgrim. Thank you, A Fortunate yeah. Pilgrim. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I thought A Fortunate Pilgrim was his first one. Okay. No, we had another one called The Dark Arena, both of which were received wonderfully by the right. critical. So basically, you have this terrific book, and it's about his family and all of this, and then yep. it doesn't sell. Here's Mario Puzzo. He's trying to raise a family you know, all these dreams of being a writer. And yeah. he's a great writer. He's talented and it doesn't yeah. sell. So he says, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to write The Godfather. Exactly. And he writes a crime <laughs> novel, which is still, I mean, beautifully written in a terrific yeah. book. But that's when he became Mario Puzo. He did that very consciously to make money and it worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I will tell you that, in my opinion, The Fortunate Pilgrim is probably one of the best American novels. Mm. I mean, it's really, it's really well written. It's a wonderful story. It's a sad story in the end, I think, but it's a wonderful story. It's got some great characters in it. I'm going to read that again. It's been a long time. I'm going to pick yeah. it up. 
I think that the bottom line, at least from my perspective with the whole publishing kind of industry and just thoughts of your voice is that, you know, there's just way too many channels in today's world to be able to get your voice heard that this traditional publishing route, I mean, I applaud anybody that's doing anything around that to try to get their voice heard and to give people information that's valuable. Because just like you said, Dolores, his book didn't work out and then didn't like deter him and he did something different and it ended up, I mean, we don't even have to explain what happened after that. But the point is, is that, I mean, I think anyone out there listening, if you're an Italian American and you want to write something, write it. If you want to make a movie, do it. The important thing that I see is that, number one, you're capturing your own history, your own family history, which is going to be important to your family at a minimum, if not inspire other people. And I think sometimes the pressures of this traditional route can stop people from producing great work. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that each genre has its or each medium has its own challenges. If, but, but you're right. You can do a film. It's a little bit more complicated, but basically you can do a film with an iPhone. You can write a book. You can write a story, whatever you can, whether it's 100 pages, whether it's 200 pages, and you can make it into a PDF and put it up online somewhere. Or you can publish it through the various self-publishing agencies, et cetera. It's true. And some people have done really well in marketing themselves that way, you know, especially in the literary world. A number of people have done that. They've, whether they've published on their own, whether they've done it through the service that Amazon offers, you know, and then there are certain charges that, you know, services that Amazon or those places will charge you for. And, you know, they've invested and some people have done very well. We need to think out of the box today. Right. Anthony's a very big proponent of that. He's always telling me, you don't need a publisher. You know, you just yeah. do it yourself. I don't know what you're yeah. waiting for. Well, I mean, listen, at a certain point in time, I mean, like Dolores has been trying for like years now. So I think you got to get to a point where you say, you know, listen, I can leave it unpublished and share it with people that I want to share it with, or I can just publish it on my own. But my greater point is, is that if you have something you want to record or write, you should do it. You should do it and figure out a way to do it. I mean, listen, when I had the initial idea for this podcast and I reached out to Dolores, the idea was like, we'll record some things about Italian American history. We'll interview some people so that we have records of this as immigrants are getting older and we're, we're losing that opportunity. We didn't have any idea that it would grow to this fashion or that we'd get some of the other opportunities that came out of it. So my point for the listener out there is, you probably have some pretty moving and inspirational stories that you can record them, figure out a way to record them. Exactly. And I'll tell you, in retrospect, I wish I had 40 years ago recorded some conversations with my grandparents because I think they would have been really interesting, especially my grandmother, who was an enemy alien in 1942, mm. considered an enemy alien. Yeah. yeah. Had you ever, did you ever speak to her about that? No, because I didn't find out until after she died. I didn't find out actually well after she died, a good 20 years. And my mother was already getting up there. And she said to me at one point now, you know, when I'm gone, you make sure that you get this little steel box. It's got some old Italian stuff in it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things in it was my grandmother's enemy alien card that was issued to her on February 14th, 1942. After Italian citizens living in the United States were classified as enemy aliens. I did a piece on this when President Trump issued, the weekend President Trump issued the travel ban. I did a piece and it's up on La Voce di New York. It's in English and it's called When We Were the Muslims. I saw that. To that point, 
I think a lot of Italian Americans forget because we're moved from that, even though it's not really that far, but they forget that we did go, you know, our ancestors went through that. What I've really cherished in doing all the research on my family and finding things like you mentioned, Anthony, like I found my both of my great grandfather's draft cards with their own handwriting, which was pretty awesome, which, you know, with their occupation and everything, it just gives you a little point of reference. I mean, Dolores, we've talked about this, too, where we said, like, you know, when Cuomo was kind of making a push, which I think was in the 80s, the mid 80s, that was like when Italian Americans were kind of just becoming more prominent. And that wasn't that long ago. So I think that there is an interesting past. And I guess, Anthony, a question I would have for you is, for the listener out there who hasn't really done a lot of academic reading or reviews, are there some resources that you could recommend to them that would give them a bird's eye view of Italian American history that you could recommend? I know it's on the spot, but... I think there are a number of books, but you know, a couple come to mind. Probably the more recent is by Jerry Mangione and Ben Moriale, but it covers 500 years, which is a lot. But there's a really good book that I like. I'm not sure if it's in print anymore. It's called Bittersweet, and it's by Alexander De Conde, D-E, capital C-O-N-D-E. He was a professor, but he was a political scientist. But he wrote this book, which is basically a history of Italians in America. And he starts with the 1700s, which is good because he talks about Jefferson and, and who Jefferson was hanging out with and Filippo Mazzei and people like that. I think that's a really good one. It's written nicely. It's not academic in the sense of academic jargon. And I think that's a really good one. And there are others, too. In the 50s and 60s, there were a couple of people who were like lawyers and doctors, whatever. And in their retirement, they wrote these sort of histories or autobiographies. And another one is a Michael Musulmano. But again, these are books that are out of print, you know, and, and that's one of the things that some of the Italian American centers, and we being one of them, have to start considering doing. And that is to take some of these good texts and bring them back into print mm. so that they're available. And even if they're only available as electronic, because you can, today, you can take an old book, you cut it up, and you can scan the pages, and it looks really good. You can make a nice little PDF or a nice, you know, whatever it's called, EPUB, you know, file, and you can read it on your phone, you can read it on your tablet, you can read it on your right. computer. That's one of the things we have to do. And, and to do it, we have to convince the well-heeled 50, 60, and 70-year-old Italians that they need, to, they need to engage in cultural philanthropy. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't like think I've thought of it that way. Yeah. We have to get people to support stuff. Look, Italians are great giving to churches and giving to hospitals. We have an example here in New York City of the Langone NYU Medical Center, right? And you go into just about any church in any Italian or old Italian neighborhood, and inevitably you see these plaques where a lot of families have given money. But it's new for culture. It really is new for culture. And we're finding that out. We were fortunate. We were given a grant for this year for a lecture series and also to help us out with our italics program from the Francesco and Mary Giambelli Foundation. Francesco and Mary were no longer with us. Used to probably one of the first modern high-end Italian restaurants on Madison Avenue called Giambelli's, way before the wave of high-end Italian restaurants of the 80s and 90s. They left behind this foundation. And so the president of the foundation approached us and 
that we put in a, a grant and we got a grant. So actually two months from now, we'll probably have our first lecture of the lecture series. And so we'll, we'll make sure you get that so you can yes. let your let your listeners know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's a hard sell because it, just in general, we're used to something concrete and culture is not concrete except mm. in books, right? Or in movies, whatever. It's a challenge to get that across. But people are listening. And I'm noticing that people are giving. They're giving, you know, in a modest way, but people are giving and that's wonderful. So now we just have to make sure that those who can afford to give more get in tune with, with what it means to engage in, in a significant cultural philanthropy. Let me ask you a question, Anthony, I think is, uh, is an interesting one. So I've mentioned it before on the show, but we had Gates Elise on our show. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about the fact that Italian Americans are really just not people of the book. I think that's nearly a quote. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we're uh, performers, entertainers, but really his point being, you know, kind of hearkening back to what I asked you earlier about, mm-hmm. you know, is it the Italian American subject or is it the author? Meaning that we don't read, Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. I'm generalizing. Yeah. I, and I, I wonder I, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I know. I know. I remember when he first published back in 1993, where the Italian American novels, I think, or where the Italian American novelists. I mean, I think they're out there. We do read. I just don't think we read Italian Americans as much as we read quote unquote Americans. And it's because at a certain point, the books disappeared. And let me explain. If you go to Rose DeZilli Green's 1974 book, The Italian American Novel, you will find that she has a bibliography of about 220 books, novels in the back of her book. And they're starting with around 19, I think 12, 15, something like that, up until 1970, which was more or less probably when she finished the study. And then it took a couple of years for it to get published. You see a lot of books published by really good presses. And that stopped somewhere along the line. Uh, And we spoke already about how in the 60s and early 70s, Mario Puzo had problems with getting his books read, let's say. On the one hand, we don't read each other. We don't read ourselves, or we didn't. And on the other hand, the books sort of fell out of favor. They weren't published anymore, the Italian-American novelists, or they weren't published by the big presses. I think we do read. I think that part of the proof in the pudding is that Lisa Scottoline or Scottoline and Adriana Trigiani Mm-hmm. have written very much about only their Italian experience and their book yeah. is sold. And I think a lot of Italian-Americans, especially women, have read them. And I think a lot of non-Italian-Americans, obviously, have read them because their books have been bestsellers. And those are the examples we need to try to emulate in one way, shape, or form. I've been in Talisa's company. We were, a number of years ago, on a panel together celebrating Luigi Varzini, and he made that statement. And and I think there's some truth to it. And I think for part of what we have to do is to be more proactive in making sure Italian-Americans do read. I like what the last 10 years that both the ambassador of NIAF and the Italian-America, the Order of Sons of Italy, is doing. And that is they have at least three or four very short reviews of books in their issues. And I think that's good right. because they go out to tens of thousands. In the case of Order of Sons of Italy, it goes out to five, 600,000 people. So they see that there are books that are being published and, you know, and they may be intrigued to read them. 
I see what you mean by the catch-22, I understand. Yeah, but let me also say this, though. One of the things we have to do, whether it's those of us in the academy, whether it's someone who has much more cultural currency, like a gay Talese, like the two people I just mentioned, Lisa Scottolini and Adriana Trajani, though Adriana is a great champion of Italian-American studies. She wrote the foreword to my book. Wonderful. Yeah, and it's not even published yet. I mean, talk Wonderful. about a champion of, of young Italian writers and cultures. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, we need to talk about that after. Oh, sure, so, of course. <laughs> so, but I think what those people have to do what I would wish those people would do right. is that they would engage in a type of behavioral cultural philanthropy. In other words, they have the currency, the cultural currency to open doors for people. We try to do that in the academy. There are a couple of us who try to do that with younger profs, you know, who are still not tenured, who are still trying to get their first articles and book published, whatever. We try to do that. We try to, whether it's mentoring them, whether it's right. making a phone call for them, not to guarantee a publication, but to get that essay, maybe a second look. And sometimes on a first look, things get ignored. Somebody goes back and looks at an essay a second time and goes, oh, wow, wait a second. This is something really interesting. This is more interesting than I thought, you know? That's what we all have to do, those of us who are in any sort of position of influence. And that's what I wish some of the more popular people would do. Yeah. Opening doors for each other. I understand yeah. because for whatever reason, Adriana's books and Gay Talese's books are out there. They're available, yeah. which is one of the tenants you're saying is lacking yeah. nowadays. So when they're there, people yeah. read them. Yeah. You know, people yeah. read The Shoemaker's Wife. It's, right. it's extremely right. popular. Yeah. Unto the Sons is a classic. So it's yeah. almost like if it's available to the public, It'll be read, but if it's not available, it's not read. Right, exactly. It doesn't exist, exactly. <laughs> right. I think to Anthony's point as well is that Adriana Trigiani does a fabulous job of promoting Italian, you know, all things Italian-American. I mean, she's really known for that. I mean, we had her on our show, and it was dynamite. And in what she did to put it out there shows you that, you know, she's proud of it, and she's going to let people know about it. And... I think that's what more people in those types of positions can do to really help the community, you know, thrive and be out there. And I'll tell you both of that, both, both she and because Adriana's come to the Institute, she's done stuff for us here, you know, she's done lecture or whatever, and never asked for anything. Years ago, I tried to set something up with Lisa Scottline, Scottolina, and I remember she said to me, and, and she was going to have to travel. And the only thing she wanted was for us to set up a reading for her. And she was going to come on her own, you know, to give a lecture, to mm. do a reading for us. And she just wanted a public reading somewhere else, which is, of course, not that difficult to set up. So those are our two, quote unquote, fairy godmothers or big sisters yeah. out there who on, you know, the drop of a hat will promote the culture, the Italian-American culture. Anthony, before we wrap up here, tell our listeners about the Calandria Institute, because I want to give them an opportunity to hear about it. Well, the Calandria Institute is almost 40 years old by now. It was founded in 1979, and it had an original mission that is a sort of nine-point mission, but divided between student services counseling, career counseling, the second part being outreach, and the third part being research. And we still follow that mission today. We do less counseling just because 
it's less needed. We're dealing with second and third generation Italian-American college students for the most part, although there are still some working class first generation college students. We do outreach in a much different way now. You know, we don't do paper newsletters anymore. We do electronic newsletters. We print out a few and we engage. We have, of course, outreach through our italics and through other web media. And then, of course, we also engage in a good deal of research and we also publish a lot of our research now. The technology in the last 25 years has made it so much easier to publish this stuff. So we have a book series with Calandra. We just published the 12th volume. We've got another five or six books that were published before I got here. And we have public events. That's part of our outreach and research, public events. And so people should go to our website and they can sign on to our listserv and, and they'll see everything we do. We do an annual conference with a sort of, with a specific theme that changes from year to year. So we're here, we're open, we're open basically not 365, but close to it. <laughs> I was going to say definitely sign up for the newsletter. It's tremendous. And you guys do so many things there. I get the newsletter and I'm looking through it. I'm scrolling through it saying, this is amazing, the amount of different events and the different styles and perspectives and everything. So you do a wonderful job there. And we're doing something a little bit different than later this spring. We're having a two and a half day symposium on Giuseppe De Santis, who was an Italian-American neo-realist filmmaker. The Americans would know him by the film Bitter Rice, which was made back in 1949. That's probably the movie most famous in America. But he was there with Fellini and with the Sica and, and all of those others. So we're doing that. Then our conference is at the end of April. So Anthony, what are some projects in the near future that you're going to be working on? Or what can we look for from you in the next six months to a year? As you know, I've done a lot of work on Italian-American cinema and writers in English. My project I'm sort of bringing to an end is small book on Italian writing in America. So those people who live uh, still alive and those who are no longer with us who live here, have lived here for decades, but yet write in Italian and are published in Italy. And they seem to have fallen through a crack because they're published by good presses in Italy but the Italian literary establishment doesn't really take notice of them. And of course, here, they're writing in Italian. Mm. So many Italian-Americans who don't know Italian aren't reading them. And of course, you know, most Americans aren't reading them. So that's my next project, which I hope to finish in a couple of months and bring to conclusion and send it off. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We know how busy you are with all the, the projects you have going and the, and the great content you're putting out. And for those of you listening, like I said, get the newsletter for the Calandra Institute. There's a lot of opportunities to engage with your culture that they provide. And you, know, you should really take advantage of it. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Anthony. It is now time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives or even read something that a listener submitted. In today's segment, you are going to hear a very special story from one of our listeners. I really can't even describe it, so I'm just going to let you listen. Here it is. So I have a really great story that actually happened recently to my family and me. 
My father was born in Italy, and he and his family moved to the States when he was about 16. And when he was born, he had a twin who unfortunately passed away during childbirth. And his parents never really talked about her and never really told his siblings anything about the circumstances of her passing. And one thing that really upset my father was they never knew the name of his twin sister. And this is something that really, you know, bothered him throughout his life. And he expressed sadness about it to me several times. And uh, about a few weeks ago, he expressed that he was really upset that he didn't know his sister's name. And this time I thought, what if there's something I can do to find out something about her? So I scoured the internet trying to find public records in Italy, birth or death certificates, anything I could find. Eventually, after a couple hours, I stumbled upon the website for his village, which is called Alberona. It's in the south. And I looked through the website. I found what looked like some email addresses for Town Hall, one that looked like it was for records and statistics. So in my very rough Italian, I sent an email hoping, you know, to get a response. I just kind of said, this is my dad's name and his information, and this is what we're trying to find out. And just kind of sent it, hoping something would maybe happen, but not expecting much. And a few days later, lo and behold, I look in my spam folder in my email, and I have a response from his town hall with the name and birth certificate of his twin sister that passed away. That was a really amazing and powerful experience. My dad was, of course, thrilled, sad, just so many emotions. And we're going to Italy in a few weeks, uh, back to his village, and we hope to, you know, maybe get that birth certificate, go find her grave. I'm just so appreciative that I have a father from Italy that I can you know, share in our family's history with. And I'm really happy that I could give him some peace. All right, so I hope you enjoyed our interview with Anthony Tambori and also our beautiful segment there from Marissa. I'm going to kick it over to Dolores here to take us out. Okay, Anthony, we want to thank some of the folks who left us reviews on iTunes since our last episode. Thank you, Andy Cofino. Thank you, JG Yankees and Review. You all left us some beautiful five-star reviews, and we very much appreciate it. So you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram at Italian American. We are on Twitter at Ital American, and we are on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Ciao, paisani! Ciao.